Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to two openings. We'll start in Galatians chapter 3 and then in Genesis chapter 12. We started a series uh, last Wednesday night uh, that we've uh, um, titled Biblical Prosperity. And uh, tonight we want to talk about uh, that subject a little bit further. We want to kind of go back to the beginning of things and God's um, uh, original plan and therefore the foundation for believing for prosperity. So in, Gen- in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Christ has redeemed us. Now Paul is writing to the Galatians is primarily a, a Gentile church. There are Jews there and the Jews have tried to, the Jews that have come in from other places have tried to stir up the trouble among the church and split the church and, and um, put a demand upon the church that they need to keep the law of Moses and so forth. When Paul says uh, Christ has redeemed us, he's talking about all those that have named the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior. So he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham, here's the reason why he redeemed us from the curse of the law, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, and here's the second part of it, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. See, Abraham didn't receive the Spirit of God through faith or any other means. There was no way for him to receive the Spirit of God unto himself. So receiving the promise of the Spirit, the promise was that which was promised to come in Abraham's day and in every day, uh, every generation prior to Jesus being here on the earth. But when he says that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith, I want you to notice he mentions that there are two, two aspects, two parts, if you will, to the blessing of Abraham. First, Abraham had the promise of the Spirit that he couldn't realize, but we do. We can. But first and foremost that he mentions the blessing of Abraham, meaning the natural blessings, the things that God promised Abraham here on the earth and provided for him here on the earth. There was no spiritual blessing, no spiritual benefit for Abraham, available to Abraham, because Jesus hadn't come and fulfilled the the law. The law hadn't even been given. It wouldn't be given for another 400 years through Moses, 400 years after Abraham. So there was nothing for, uh, for Abraham to keep or fulfill to be able to receive the promise of the Spirit. So I want you to notice that, that uh, Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost that there are two things, two aspects, two characteristics, two parts of why Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. That we might receive the natural blessings of Abraham here on the earth and the spiritual blessings of having uh, literally being born again, receiving the promise of the Spirit, that's being born again by the Holy Ghost. Recreated, made a new creature in Christ Jesus. Now, the reason that I want to emphasize on that for a few moments is because so often when you get to talking about material things, so much of the church has spiritualized everything that they don't recognize or accept the material blessings. And in many circles, church circles, denominational circles, You start talking about the blessing of God. You start talking about God wanting to provide for you. Anything more than just barely getting by, keeping your nose to the grindstone and so forth. And they'll call you heretics. They'll think that you're preaching some new strange doctrine because they're conditioned to believe that Jesus came for your spiritual well-being and nothing else. But Paul apparently didn't agree. Because if Paul just uh, wanted to tell us about the spiritual blessings, then he could have very simply said that Christ has redeemed us so that we could be born again. But that's not what he said. He included that, but that's not what he said. He said Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, here's the fulfillment, here's how we know that he did. For it is written, curses is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That's Jesus hanging on the cross. 
for two reasons. Number one, and the first one he mentions, is that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. Why would he tell that to a predominantly Gentile church who obviously has experience with the Jews because of the Jews talking about the law of Moses and trying to impose upon the church the necessity to keep the law of Moses, which was wrong. Why would he say that? Because they know the blessing of Abraham upon the Jews. The whole world knows the blessing of Abraham upon the Jews, the material blessing of Abraham upon the Jews. Everybody recognizes that. And that's the first thing Paul brings out. He says that Jesus came and did the work on the cross so that we would have earthly blessings and spiritual blessings. He goes on to say in verse 29, and if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed. In other words, there's no adoption here. There's no stepchildren relationship with God. Once you make Jesus the Lord of your life, then you become a part of the descendant, the line of descendants of Abraham. Now, not, he's not talking about natural descendants. He's talking about the ones that God intended to be his family all along, and that's all those that would receive Jesus through faith. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs, heirs, inheritors, in other words, heirs according to the promise. Now, what was the promise? We'll turn back with me to Genesis chapter 12. We want to find out what the blessing of Abraham is. Let's go back and see what God's relationship with Abraham was and what he told him and how it all came about. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house and unto a land that I will show thee. First thing he said that he was going to do for Abraham is show him a new place to live. We know of that as the promised land. The Bible identifies that as the promised land many years later. Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee and I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. Now what did that result in? We'll look at chapter 13. And Abram went up out of Egypt. The, the, the part of the story that we're skipping is the famine in the land. Abraham goes down to Egypt and uh, there are certain things that happen down there. One of the things that happens is the uh, uh, one of the, the leaders, the rulers in uh, the land that he goes to sees Sarah, his wife, thinks she's really good looking. So he wants to take her to wife and Abraham is trying to protect himself. Obviously, I mean, th- he didn't even qualify as a baby Christian. And so he's operating according to the world's wisdom, trying to save his own hide. So he says to Sarah, tell him you're my sister, not my wife, but my sister. And so the Lord plagues the uh, the Egyptian, the, the ruler that takes him with well-intentioned. I mean, he's trying to do the right thing. He takes her thinking that she's available to take for a wife. So he takes her, and before he gets together with her, before they sleep or sleep together or have um, uh, sexual relations, God comes to him in a dream and, and shows him that the problem with the, the famine and all the, the different plagues and different things that are taking place in his life and in his land is because he took Sarah to his wife because she's Abraham's wife. So the king goes back to Abram and says, why'd you lie to me? And Abraham says, well, I was afraid. I was trying to protect her and me both and makes up some kind of excuse. And instead of the king being mad about it, he realizes that God's on Abram's side. He gives him just about everything that he has. So that brings us to chapter 13. It says, and Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him under the south. Verse 2, and Abram was very rich in cattle 
and silver and in gold. Abram was very rich. Everybody say very rich. Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and gold. Keep that verse in your mind. I want to come back and and take it apart a little bit and talk about some of the characteristics of it. He was very rich in cattle and silver and gold. He was very rich in cattle and silver and gold. Now, the one thing that the Bible tells us, the one part of the story that the Bible tells us, we don't know what else happened because we don't know how long a period this was. But the one thing that the Bible does tell us is that the, the king who took Sarah to be his wife and found out his mistake that was revealed to him by the Lord, his mistake, showered Abram with goods. He showered Abram with goods. So a lot of these goods, these silver, cattle, and gold that Abram comes back with is because someone outside of God's covenant relationship, the only one God has a covenant with at this point, well, he really doesn't even have a covenant. He's just given Abraham the instructions and Abraham has obeyed. The only one he has a relationship with is Abram. So somebody outside of Abram's spear has showered him, or we could say favored him with riches. Now, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 22 that the blessing of the Lord maketh rich. Let's go back to where we started. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. For what purpose? Galatians 3.14. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through faith. That's the natural part. Spiritual part is and that, may, that or so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. What does the Bible identify the first blessing of God upon Abraham to be? Material wealth. Material wealth. Folks, you need to understand something. And, and I'm, I'm going to talk a lot about, uh, at least I think I am. We'll see how it goes. But one of the things that, uh, that gets me about uh, uh, the prosperity message is that so many times the prosperity teachers that I'm aware of and that you're aware of are talking about the only means or the primary means of prospering is you give and then money will come back to you. And that's about the only action that there is that's um, uh, the only instruction there is to action to bring about an increase according to God's plan and purpose and will for your life. But that's not the way the Jews operate. The Jews, the natural descendants of Abraham, who clearly by any and every measure are operating in what has to be the blessing of Abraham here on the earth. They don't operate that way. And it seems to work for them better than it works for the church. If you'll allow me to make an observation. Now, don't get me wrong. There are multitudes of people that take the scriptures of God meeting your needs and and act on those scriptures and believe those scriptures and get them down on the inside of their heart and see God do great things. But do you know of any circle, in any circle of influence where anybody looks at the church and says, wow, those people seem to make money like crazy. Yet it's what the Jews are known for. Well, why is it that the Jews, the natural descendants of Abraham, seem to, and you correct me if I'm wrong here, but by every measure that I'm able to identify, measure of natural wealth that is, Why is it that the Jews are known for their wealth and the church is not? Do the Jews have something better than the church has? 
In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 8 that we, the church, has a better covenant established on better promises. Now, Paul is saying that writing these things, I believe Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews. If it is Paul, it's certainly his message. Paul is saying, even though he's a Jew, even though he knows what the blessing of Abraham, the material blessings of Abraham are and, and were all of his life, He's been schooled in these things. He's been indoctrinated in the blessing of Abraham. He says that we have a better covenant. Now, think about that for a minute. A better covenant, there's only one way that it could be a better covenant. He didn't say we have a substitute covenant. He didn't say we have a different covenant. He said, this is Hebrews 8, 6, he said we have a better covenant established on better promises. The only way that the new covenant could be better than Abraham's covenant or Abraham's blessing of material well-being, and, and there's other things of, that apply to it or, in, or included in it, but we'll just boil it down for this because this is the subject of our discussion uh, at present. The only way that the new covenant could be a better covenant than the blessing of Abraham would be to contain everything that what Abraham had plus what Jesus made available to us that Abraham couldn't have. Because of the time they lived. Otherwise, he used the wrong word. In other words, the Holy Ghost would have had to make a mistake. In impressing Paul to write that we have a better covenant established on better promises. But if you compare that to Hebrews, uh, I'm sorry, if you compare compare Hebrews 8, 6 with Galatians 3, 13, which by the way, most scholars or many scholars, I don't know if most is accurate, but many scholars believe that the reason that the book of Hebrews does not have a, uh, a salutation or identification of the author is because it was attached to the book of Galatians. Because it deals with some of the very things that the Galatian church was going through because the Jews had come in and tried to stir up trouble and add the law of Moses to faith in Jesus and so forth. And if that is the case, I believe it is. But if it is the case, then you compare Hebrews 8, 6 with Galatians 3, 13 and they're parallel scriptures in this sense. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon us and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We have a better covenant established upon better promises. That's the only thing that would make it better covenant, folks. That's the only thing that would qualify. So the Jews have a mindset toward prosperity the church doesn't seem to have. Now, if you were with us last uh, Wednesday night, we started off this series by talking about the transformative power of God's word. Isaiah 55, 11 says, God said, my word shall not return unto me void. Well, void of what? Void of power and void of results. But it shall accomplish that which I please. And it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. Now, God's word is sent for different purposes for different situations. For example, there are healing scriptures. If you plug in healing scriptures to Isaiah 55, 11, it will prosper in the thing that it was sent to do. In other words, it will bring about healing. It shall not return void of healing, powerless regarding healing, but it shall prosper, accomplish what God pleases, and prosper in the thing which it was sent to do. Same thing would be true for peace scriptures. Peace scriptures bring peace. Healing scriptures bring healing. Salvation scriptures bring salvation. If it's believed and acted on. Well, then the same thing would have to be true where prosperity scriptures are concerned, wouldn't it? Prosperity scriptures will not return void of power to prosper. Void of power, God's power, to prosper you financially or materially. 
but it'll accomplish what God pleases. The reason we know it pleases him is because he's the one that speaks the word. And it shall prosper in the thing or the area that he sent it to work. So if we would renew our minds and become established in the blessing of Abraham that now belongs to us because of Jesus' sacrifice, then I believe, you judge this for yourself, but if the Bible is true, we have to conclude that the church could be in the same position as the Jews looked upon by the world and says, wow, those people seem to make money out of nothing. Clearly, that's not the case now. But it could be. And I believe it should be. Now, what is the problem here? The problem is very simply this. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me just give it a summary and then we'll prove it. To sum up the problem, the church doesn't believe in the goodness of wealth like the Jews do. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Oh, wait a minute. I don't want to go there first. I want to go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. We'll go immediately back to Genesis 2. So if you've already found that, hold your finger there. But look at Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is after the Jews have spent, they've spent 430 years in bondage to the Egyptians, slaves to the Egyptians. Didn't start out that way. You remember Joseph went down to, to Egypt. He was taken captive, sold into slavery by his brothers. He winds up becoming prime minister of Egypt, second in charge only to the Pharaoh. Uh, through the interpretation of dreams and God showing him what was coming, the seven years of famine and seven years of plenty and so forth. Joseph becomes prime minister of Egypt and his house, is, his house and his family moves down there to where he is. And, and they are revered like nobody else. But another Pharaoh comes along after a generation or two and they forget Joseph. And so they put the Jews in slavery because of their... their uh, proliferation in the in the area of the land and so they spend 430 years in slavery god delivers them we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go he delivers them to the 10 plagues uh, upon pharaoh and the egyptians god brings them out of egypt takes them to the promised land that promised land is the land that god told abraham that he would show him in genesis chapter 12 the intent for from god's perspective from god's position was that this would be the land for Abraham's natural descendants to live in forever. I know there's a lot of dispute about that and who the land really belongs to. God said it belonged to Abraham and his children. You can decide for yourself, but that's what God said. They come to the edge of the promised land and the children of Israel refuse to go in because of their unbelief. They think that the people in the cities are too strong for them, that they'll, they'll be defeated and so forth. So they spend 40 years in the wilderness. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is Moses giving his farewell address. Most of the, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' farewell address to the children of Israel because he knows he's not going into the promised land. And he gives them a lot of instruction. Most of it is obey the word, keep the commandments of God. If you do, good things will happen. If you don't, bad things will happen. Deuteronomy chapter 8, I want to start reading here in verse... Uh, uh, let's start in uh, verse 6. Therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee unto a good land, 
a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that bring about, spring up out of the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of oil, olive, and honey, a land wherein there is no scarceness, uh, I'm sorry, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness, thou shalt not lack anything. Now, I want you to notice here's God's plan for his people, a land that not only provides for you, but a land in which you shall not lack anything in it. Now, folks, please understand, this is the blessing of Abraham passed down to his descendants over several hundred years. If the blessing of Abraham, in other words, was just for Abraham, then why is Moses telling the children of Israel these things at this point in time? A land wherein thou shalt eat, uh, wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness, thou shalt not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. The reason that he says these things is he's talking about God picked a land for his children, for his people, that is resource plentiful. There's not one resource that they'll need that they don't have. It's one of the things that causes a lot of the people to believe that there's oil under the land of Israel somewhere, somehow, if they can just find it and get to it. Verse 10, when thou hast eaten and art full, that must be okay with God is to eat and be full. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he has given thee. Notice what he said, that it's a good land because of. Because of water, springs and valleys and hills, wheat, barley, vines, fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, honey. Where there's bread to eat without scarceness, not lacking anything, stones of iron, and out of whose hills you may dig brass. That's what God calls a good land. Plentiful resources. No scarceness, no lack. An abundance of everything, in other words. Not an abundance of a couple of things and then make do with the rest. An abundance of everything. Now, folks, I, I, forgive me for taking my time on this, but this is so far into the Christian way of thinking. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he has given thee, Verse 11, here's the warning. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God and not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwell therein. God must be okay with good houses and living in them. And when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied and all that they have is multiplied, that must be okay with God too. Notice he's not saying don't multiply your silver and gold. He knows it's going to happen because that's the blessing of Abraham. Abraham was very rich in silver and cattle and gold. Notice Abraham was not very rich in spiritual blessings. He was rich, very rich in silver and cattle and gold. Now he's saying the same things are going to happen to his descendants hundreds of years later. Don't let your heart, verse 14, then thy heart be lifted up. He's warning against this. Then your heart be lifted up and thou forget the Lord thy God which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Notice what he says that there is a tendency for money and resources to do. To get you looking away from God. Now if it was an automatic thing he would have said I know you want to be rich. But for your own sake 
I'm going to keep that from happening so you don't turn away from me. Yet that's the very position that most of the church world takes. God doesn't want you to have too much. Because even the Bible says the prosperity of fools will destroy. Folks, I've got a, I've got a hint. Don't be a fool. Then that prosperity of fools destroying you passes right by. Just don't be a fool. What would a fool do? Forget God. Allow his financial situation and abundance to cause him to turn away from God. Forget what it's like to believe God. Start trusting in the things that he has and the money that he has in the bank instead of the God that put the money in the bank to begin with. Or gave him the means to get the money in the bank. That's all he's saying. God wants them to have these things. He's telling them ahead of time through Moses, this is what's going to happen. Why is it going to happen? Because the blessing of Abraham is theirs. Now, here's the question. Why don't these things happen to the church? The Bible says clearly that the blessing of Abraham is ours. Why are these things not happening to the church? At least in the manner that he's talking about happening for Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Don't get me wrong, folks. I'm not complaining about anything. I'm not going to take another offering tonight. I'm not looking for a raise from the church. I'm talking about these from a position that I want you to get your head involved because it's the renewing of your mind to the truth that's going to make the difference in your life. It's not even going to be anything that I tell you that's going to make the difference. It's going to be what you see in the Word of God for yourself and you are willing and determined to renew your mind too. But the Bible says, if the Bible is true, if you renew your mind to the biblical means of prosperity, God's way of prospering, then there's nothing in this earth that can keep you from prospering. So what's the warning? Don't forget God. Simple enough. Maybe harder to do, but simple enough to to understand. It would be something that they would have to be just like we would have to be on our guard every day to make sure that we're not putting our trust in the things that God's blessed us with. I was talking to a missionary friend one time, and well, it was Terry Mice, and uh, and Terry said that that he was um, uh, walking through his house one day and and just thinking about how God had blessed him and 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 how wonderful you know things were, and and there were some things specifically that he had believed for for some time, and God had brought to them, and and he'd had them for a month or two or whatever it was, however long it was, and he was walking through his house, and he just looked at it and he said, "Oh Lord, thank you for that. That's such a blessing." And then the Lord said, I want you to give that away. That? He asked. Yeah, I want you to give it away. Told him who to give it to. He said, well, Lord, why would I want to do that? I just believed for it for some time. And the Lord said, I want to make sure that that you have it instead of it having you. He said, see, the things that you are not willing to give up, Those are the things that have you. Well, Terry said, well, I don't want anything to have me. Of course I'll give it away. So he gave it away that day. Within a week, God had given him a better one. See, God wasn't trying to get something away from him. He was trying to make sure that he kept his heart in the right position. And Terry told me, he said, from that day forward, he said, I've never had a problem with anything that I ever had. There's nothing that I've got that I'm not willing to give away instantly. Well, that's the way God wants us to be, isn't it? Isn't that what God's talking about here? He said, beware, 
Don't let your heart be lifted up. And you forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions, and drought where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of Flint. See, a lot of people want to teach that God caused the fiery serpents to come into the camp and God makes people sick and brings tragedy on them. I want you to know something, folks. God led them for 40 years to a land of, of a wilderness where he said, Moses said on behalf of God, that the snakes were always there. Now think about that. Over 40 years, we only have one instance where the fiery serpents came into the camp. So instead of focusing on the time that they came in, and trying to attach that, to attach blame to God for that. Why don't, why doesn't the church turn around and say, look at the 39 or 40 years minus one event caused by their own disobedience that God protected them. But you don't hear anybody preaching on that. But look at the goodness of God, even as a result of their disobedience, when they were in disobedience and spent the 40 years in the wilderness that God never wanted them to spend to begin with, God took care of them. Verse 16, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And thou shalt say in thine heart, here's the heart that's lifted up and has forgotten God. Then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, says has gotten me this great wealth. I think that applies with all the stuff that he talked about, your flocks and your herds and your silver and gold multiplying and all that other stuff. Then your heart be lifted up and say in your heart, my, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. But instead, here's the right course of action. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God. Instead of forgetting him, remember him. For it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. It is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. Now, folks, remember... Paul, if he's the author of the book of Hebrews, and if he's not, it's still inspired by the Holy Ghost. So we could say God said in Hebrews chapter 8, we have a better covenant established on better promises. Not a different covenant, not a substitute covenant, a better one. That means everything they had plus some. Specifically, it means the blessing of Abraham plus the Spirit of God that recreates us and makes us new creatures in Christ Jesus. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee the power to get wealth. What is the power to get wealth? The blessing of Abraham. This is not rocket science, folks. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. Now, in my opinion, the most important part of this verse is not the power to get wealth. I know that sounds great. But the most important part of the verse is in the last few words of the, of the verse. Let's start in verse 18 again. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish or prove or make good his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers. Please notice that the power to get wealth is the proof of God's covenant relationship with Abraham. And if you be Christ, Galatians 3, 3.29, if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Folks, please understand what the Bible is saying. If the Bible is true, it is saying that wealth, wealth creation, the power to get wealth, which we would, would, could term wealth creation, is the proof 
of God's covenant relationship with Abraham that was fulfilled in Jesus. It's the proof that you've made Jesus the Lord of your life. Most important part of the verse for the Jews are the last four or five words of the verse. That he may establish his covenant which he swear unto thy fathers. This is the important part. As it is this day. You know what that means? It means simply this. It means Moses is saying the same promise, the same material blessings that God made to Abraham hundreds of years ago. Hundreds of years before we, Moses and his generation, were ever born. The same promise, the same guarantee is for you today just like it was the day that God spoke it to Abraham. It belongs to each of you. Now that's what he's saying to the Jews and they believe it. They believe it. They believe it. I would submit to you that the church by and large does not. I would submit to you that even we have trouble believing it in the way that God wants us to. Now, what does that mean? Stop and think about it. Everywhere the Jews have ever gone, whether they've been in a land that was their own, whether they've been in somebody else's land, wherever the Jews have gone, they've prospered to such a degree that they become hated by people who were jealous of what they had. So much of the persecution of the Jews is because of the wealth that they've accumulated, the fact that they're able to, to create wealth out of nothing, when nobody else outside the children of Israel, the natural descendants of Abraham, seem to be able to. And in many cases, over time, over history, in many cases, governments would just wipe out the debts that everybody owed to the Jews and chase them out of their land and reset their, their economic system. Because, if they, the, because in their thinking, if they didn't do something, the Jews were going to wind up owning everything. Why? Because the Jews understand from the time that they're born as children, they're taught that they have the power to get wealth. They're taught that they have the power to get wealth. Now, what is it that makes the difference between the church and the Jews? Well, there's a number of things I'm sure that we could talk about, but one of the things I want to focus on for just a few minutes is simply this. The Jews understand that the power to get wealth, which is the blessing of Abraham, the blessing God gave to Abraham, the power to get wealth is something that nobody else in the world has. And they understand, they've proved it out over centuries, that because the rest of the world doesn't have what they have, which is favor from God, the blessing from God, because the rest of the world doesn't have it, the rest of the world is going to speak against it and them. But they don't let the speaking against them the rest of the world speaking against them the rest of the world denigrating them the rest of the world saying it doesn't exist meaning the blessing of abraham they don't let that deter them from what they know to be true and what they know to be true is god gave them the power to get wealth contrast that with the church if we have a better covenant established upon better promises if christ redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us that we might receive the blessing of abraham as a gentile along with the new birth and the spiritual blessings that Jesus fulfilled and provided for us, if those things are true, then the church should recognize that they have something that nobody else has. 
Now, there's something that they have that the Jews have would be the blessing of Abraham. But the thing that the church has that nobody else has are the spiritual blessings too, not instead of the material promises made to Abraham, but in addition to. But the church doesn't do that. The church trades. By and large, I'm talking about the mindset concerning biblical prosperity. The mindset of so much of the church is money is evil. Spiritual things are good. And Christ provided spiritual blessings for us. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. Stop here. Let me interrupt myself and and throw another thought out there. Was the blessing of Abraham spiritual or just earthly? It was a spiritual blessing that brought about material results. But the church won't accept that. The church, by and large, takes the position, has the mindset that ours are spiritual blessings that don't result in material results. That God wants your spirit to be blessed. He wants your spirit to be renewed. He wants your spirit to grow and develop. But that God will sometimes bring hardship on you, the lack of material things, so that he keeps you close to him. That's not what God said in Deuteronomy chapter 8, keeps you close to him. He didn't say it's the absence of things that keep you close to him. He says it's a determination not to forget him. He says it's a decision to recognize and always remember and to keep in your remembrance. Sounds like the renewing of the mind to me. That it's God that gives you the power to get wealth. It's not your own ability. The Jews don't let what the world thinks about money shake them up. The church does. We're bombarded with it. How many things do we hear? And, and, and politicians are the worst. Any little hiccup in the economy, and it's always because of the evil and greedy Wall Street. Now, folks, I don't doubt for a minute that there are greedy and evil people on Wall Street. But are there more greedy and evil people in Wall Street than there are working in the White House? Are there more greedy and evil people working in Wall Street than there are lawyers? Evil and greedy people that are lawyers? Are there more evil and greedy people on Wall Street than there are in the medical community? Oh, now, now, wait a minute, Pastor Mike. Doctors are in it for the good of the people. Oh, really? You ever talk to many doctors? Most of them are in it for the good of the people so that they can get rich, too. Which is why a lot of the doctors are dropping out after this Obamacare stuff. Because Obamacare is all about limiting what the doctors can make. Because we can't let evil and greedy people get in medicine. Wait a minute. I thought they were there because of the good of the people. I thought there was an altruistic endeavor here. My point is very simply this. There are not more evil and greedy people on Wall Street than there are in any other area of business. And I would submit to you that for the most part... They're exceptions rather than the rules. Look at TV and and movies. How many times are the bad guys and the villains in the movie just simply the company? The corporation. You don't even have to put a name to it. Just call it the company. Everybody understands that's bad. That's evil. They're terrible people. They'll kill whoever they have to to gain a buck. Folks, I I, I don't want to spend too long on this, but do you realize 
that there is no time that someone is less self-concerned than when they're doing business for the benefit of somebody else. In other words, what I mean by that is this. If I'm going to go in business to make money, to bless my family or to help humanity or whatever, I'm going to have to rack my brain to find out something that's good for you. Because if I don't come up with something that's good for you, you're not going to buy it. And I'm not only not going to make money, I'm going to go bust. So every business endeavor, in some way or another, every good, every service, every product, is designed to produce a benefit for the buyer, not for the seller. Now, the benefit to the seller is a byproduct of a benefit to the buyer. But that's not what, the, what our culture teaches today. Our culture teaches today that the only thing, the only business that's good is a business that's regulated by the government. It's in every aspect of our society. You go to a kindergarten class and ask the kids what they want to do. You'll have kids stand up and say, well, I want to be a fireman. Why? Because firemen help people. I want to be a policeman. Well, they probably won't say policeman anymore. Policemen used to help people. I'm going to discover a cure for cancer. How many kids stand up and say, I want to be a business executive and make tons of money? The whole class would gasp a collective sigh. (gasps) Because that's not what anybody's supposed to do. What we're supposed to do as good people is look out for the other person and never be concerned for ourselves. Folks, do you realize we'd be living in the Stone Age if it weren't for business? Jews understand this. The Jews get it. And they do not let what the culture, society, the government, or anybody else tell them about business, about money, about wealth, deter them from the understanding that God has given them, and only them in their opinion, the power to get wealth. Why would the world understand what the power to get wealth is about? It's not given to them. Where the church has fallen down is we haven't shown the Jews that we've got it too. Imagine if the church operated in the understanding of the power to get well like the Jews do. The Jews would stop and say, wait a minute, how do they have that? We're the only ones that have that. It would be proof to them that God is with us. Might spark some interest on their part. Turn to Genesis chapter 2. I'm running out of time. Genesis chapter 2. Here's part of what the Jews are taught from an early age. I mean, by the time they're 9 or 10 years old, these things are ingrained in them. And it's all based on the understanding that God has given them the power to get wealth. It's all based on the uh, understanding that the blessing of Abraham is a material blessing. Folks, I want you to understand, there is never a time spoken of in the Old Testament, one time in the New Testament, never a time in the Old Testament where God talks to Abraham about anything spiritual. You know why? Because Abraham is a spiritually dead man. How's he going to understand anything spiritual? One time, and it's in the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, where Paul says by the Holy Ghost that God preached the gospel of Jesus to Abraham. In other words, he showed him. Maybe it was one of the visions that he had when he made a covenant with him in Genesis chapter 15. I don't know when it was. But Paul says by the Holy Ghost that God showed Abraham that Jesus would come and be the sacrifice and be the redeemer and bring in his natural descendants 
into the family of God the promise of the Spirit through faith. Never in the Old Testament. Every dealing God ever had with Abraham was a dealing based on uh, what we might just say a business deal. Obey me and I'll do this for you. It's also interesting to notice that God never talked to Abraham about rights. He talked to him about obligations, but never rights. You don't have a right to prosper. It's not guaranteed. There's nobody that can enforce it. A right's not a right unless, you, unless it can be guaranteed and enforced. It's a joke that, the, that the, so many people have bought into. The idea that the Constitution provides everybody the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Who's going to guarantee, if somebody's got a gun to my head, who's going to guarantee that my right to life? A right's not a right unless it can be guaranteed and enforced. So many of the things that we think are rights are not rights. And if a right can be taken away, how could it ever be a right? Constitution talks about a right to religious freedom. Those things are eroding. If they can be changed, how could they ever have been a right? Genesis chapter 2. First chapter of Genesis tells us about creation. Six days of creation. At the end of each of those six days, God says everything was good and very good. It's mentioned seven times over a six-day period. God looks at everything that he made and says it is either good or it is very good. Chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all of his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Because that in it he had rested from all of his work which God had created and made. That means everything God ever made he made in the first six days and nothing was ever made after that. What day did he make sickness? What day did he make poverty? What day did he make depression? If it wasn't in one of the first six days, God didn't make it. These are the generations of the heavens of the, and of the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and every plant of the field before it was in the earth. And every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. And there was not a man to till the ground. But then went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the garden or the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for, for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, which is, that is, that is it which compasseth, or encircles, the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. And the bdellium and the onyx stone. Now, folks, 43 verses into the creation story, God says gold is good good now there's nobody to buy and sell so is God saying that gold 
meaning the precious metal itself is good? Is that the only thing that he's saying? Well, to conclude that, then we're going to have to ignore the fact that God knows what's going to happen in the future and that gold is going to become the the, the metaphor or represent all money and all wealth. What the Jews understand is very simply this. As good as the garden is, as good as the sky is, as good as the sun and the moon and the stars are, as good as man is, gold is good. And everything that gold represents and everything that gold stands for is good too. God said so. It's the only thing that specifies by God himself concerning the creation that is good. The Jews understand that means business is good. It means wealth is good. It means the gold, the precious metals is good. It means it's good in every form and in every way. Now, the world won't tell you that. The world says just the opposite. The world talks about the greedy bankers. Do you realize, think about this. What if somebody came up with the idea today in Hollywood that they wanted to make, assuming it had never been made before, come up with the idea for the movie, It's a Wonderful Life? You know the movie I'm talking about? Christmas movie, Jimmy Stewart, Donna Reed. What is the movie about? It's about a banker trying to save his business. You think that's flying Hollywood today? Not a chance. Not a chance. Now, don't get me wrong. There's an evil banker in the movie too. And if it was made in Hollywood today, that would be the purpose of the movie. But it's about one guy, honest guy, well-meaning guy, trying to save his banking business. Never would happen in today's society. Why? Because the world, driven by the spirit of the world, doesn't want you to know that gold and business is good. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. I don't have time to go into it. We may pick up here next time, or we may pick it up some other time during the series. Money is spiritual. Because it represents your life. What you do to make money is the biggest chunk of your life that you spend in any way whatsoever. Now, most people, most people, Christians I'm talking about, you ask them what they do, they'll tell you what their job is, but then they want you to know how much they support the church or how much they volunteer at the church or how much they volunteer with the Red Cross or some other community organization. Even CEOs of major multi-million dollar companies will talk about their charitable work rather than their business because there's this mindset in everybody that has not renewed their mind to biblical prosperity that making money has some evil component to it. But that the only good things are nonprofit charitable works. And so you've got corporations where these CEOs will put on their walls these certificates where they did some charitable work. And that's what they'll point their guests to when they come into their offices. Instead of the good that they're doing, providing thousands and thousands and thousands of jobs from these big companies and the providing the, the benefits and the blessings that those companies are providing through goods and services. Why? Because there's this mindset driven by the spirit of the world that does not want you to understand the power to get wealth and the fact that it belongs to you. The devil does not want you to renew your mind to the power to get wealth 
and that God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you to be rich if the Bible is true. Not only that, but the Bible says that it's the proof of the covenant God made with us that was fulfilled in Jesus. Some of these things are uncomfortable to talk about, aren't they? You know why? Because we bought into the world's way of thinking about money. If there were Jewish people, if I was speaking to a Jewish audience, they'd be sitting there saying, I don't know if they say amen or not, but if they did, they'd be saying amen. Because they get it. They get it. And they understand that the world is going to work against it. They're used to it. They may not like it, but they're used to it. Church better get used to it too. Jesus talked about the hundredfold return for following him that comes with persecutions. Well, the Jews have figured that part out. But the church, oh, we don't want anybody to think bad of us. Folks, they think bad of you already. Well, if we have money, if we prospered like the Jews, then people would think bad of us. Since they already think bad of us, why don't we just take the money anyhow? These are the things that are ingrained in the Jews from the time that they're children. They understand the dignity, the nobility, even the spiritual aspect of business. They get it. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. God has given you the power to get wealth. Well, we'll pick up here next time. We'll pick up somewhere along here next time. Let's all stand together. Is this of any interest to anybody? If not, we can change directions. Well, all right, then I expect you to do a better job of saying amen next time. I don't care if you say amen. I just want these things to start penetrating your heart and for us to start renewing our mind to them because it's true. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, that we are children of Abraham because Jesus is our Lord and Savior. We thank you, Father, that the blessing of Abraham is ours through the finished work of Jesus. We thank you that you've given us the power to get wealth. We determine up front, Father, that we will never forget you no matter how we prosper or how you increase us. But we thank you that you give us the power to get wealth to establish your covenant today just like when you first spoke it to Abraham. Thank you, Father, for making it so. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for leading us into your perfect will and plan. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.